It was going to be such a lovely, gentle sermon. We'd come to benediction from the welcome through the worship and all kinds of stuff. And I thought, what a lovely way to preach the last sermon. Yeah, I'm here next week before going holidays, but I'm not preaching. And it'd be a lovely way just to end with a nice wee reflection and blessing. It's the summer. You's one out before 12. Just a wee short homily. And then the 12th happened. So where this goes, no one knows as a result of that. But we're still in benediction. Bear with me as I try to make some sense of where we live. I want to read from Ephesians 3. And I was just going to read um, the benediction at the end of it. But um, I think it's important that I give us some context for this uh, benediction of Paul's. So let me read from Ephesians 3 and verse 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations, it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are, for, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, rooted and established in love. May have power together with all God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work, at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. One of the lovely bits of my lovely um, homily that um, is now extended would have been, and is to, uh, encourage you 
as you go off, maybe you've had your holidays and maybe you're feeling that people shouldn't talk about people going off on their holidays because yours is done for another year, etc., etc. But over the summer, people tend to read social media websites. Have been, people have been saying, what should I read in my holidays? What should I read when I go away? And uh, I've given a list of Irish books that you could read up on my blog. But uh, this one is one that came to me again uh, just over the course of the preparation of the Sermon on Benediction. Because I misunderstood benediction until I read Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. It's a wonderful book. It's a book about a minister. Technically, if Whitney Wilkinson was still here, she may say to me that it is a novel, Steve, so you can read it in your holidays, but it is a little bit theological, so you have to be careful that when you read it in your holidays, you're not thinking about some sermon you're going to preach in the autumn. It kind of crosses that novel theology uh, place. Now, perhaps actually for those who've read it as a novel, it's a Pulitzer Prize winner. They missed the theology. Calvin is quoted endlessly in this book. There's all kinds of wonderful spiritual insights in this book. And maybe, as with the music of you two and various other people, if you're not looking for it, you miss it. Maybe. It's still a good read. It's the read of a minister who late in life has a small son who's very young, and he wants to write him a letter to tell him about himself and his father who was a minister and his grandfather who was a minister. And some of the relationships that he has with people in his community and his family, um, and some of the doubts he has about faith and some of the excitements he has about faith. And um, there's this wonderful bit in the book. Let me just give you a couple of other quotations. Remembering this is only the introduction to the sermon, but anyway, um, bear with this. At least you might get a good read for the holiday. Um, in, in the voice of the Reverend Ames, um, Marilyn Robinson says, this is an interesting planet. It deserves all the attention you can give it. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a willingness to see. And I think that's the wonderful thing that Robinson brings to this, because what she brings to it is this ability to see the very simple things of life in massive ways. Baptism. You know, when I stand over there, and sometimes I even get the water in it before we start the baptism, and I hold a little baby in my arms, Robinson describes that as sacredness under my hand, just bringing out a transfiguration of the simple, and so with benediction. Near the end of the book, the minister who writes the book's best friend's son, he's the rogue. He's the black sheep of the story. He's the one who's wandered. And there's a problem in the relationship between the minister writing the book and this guy, Jack. And near the end of the book, Jack is taking off again, as Jack seems to always do. And the minister writing the book goes and finds him. He gives him a few dollars for the journey. And then he says this to him. The thing I would like, actually, is to bless you. He shrugged. What would that involve? Well, as I envisage it, it would involve my placing my hand on your brow and asking the protection of God for you. But if it would be embarrassing, there were a few people on the street. No, 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 he said. That doesn't matter. 
And he took his hat off and he set it on his knee and he closed his eyes and he lowered his head, almost rested it against my hand. And I did bless him to the limit of my powers, whatever they are, repeating the benediction from numbers, of course. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Nothing could be more beautiful than that or more expressive of my feelings or more sufficient for that matter. Then when he didn't open his eyes or lift his head, I said, Lord, bless John Brighton, this beloved son and brother and husband and father. Then he sat back and looked at me as if he were waking from a dream. Thank you, reverend, he said. And his tone made me think that to him it might have seemed I had named everything I thought he no longer was. When that was absolutely the furthest thing from my meaning, the exact opposite of my meaning. Well, anyway, I told him it was an honor to bless him. And that was absolutely true. Listen to this. In fact, I'd have gone through seminary and ordination and all the years intervening for that one moment. He just studied me in that way that he does. And then the bus came. And I said, we all love you, you know. And he laughed and said, you're all saints. He stopped in the door and lifted his hat and then he was gone. God bless him. In fact, everything I've gone through in seminary and ordination and all the years intervening were worth it for that one moment. Benediction. It is not the end credits at the end of the sermon. It is not the lead up to Jack's hallelujah. It is not telling us, oh yes, I can get back to the Sunday dinner. The benediction may be the one most precious thing that we do on a Sunday morning. If the hymns miss, if the sermon's awful, which is more likely than the hymns, if we get it all wrong, and at the end of the service, I to you, or as often happens in Fitzroy, we to each other, bless each other before we go out into the week. Then getting up, going out in the summer sun when we could be at the park, then suffering through the sermons that you have to suffer through, are all worth it because once a week, somebody, me or each of us, gives us the blessing of benediction that brings God's blessing pouring down on us to equip us for the week ahead. In the book I'm using for this series by Jamie Smith from Calvin College, he speaks of that same ironic blessing that Marilyn Robinson uses in Gilead, which I find interesting because we use it wonderfully in baptism, but we've got to start using it more as a benediction. Smith says, when we were called, we were blessed. That's when we've come into church. Remember back when we started that? Now, as we are sent at the end of a service, we are blessed. We are not sent out as orphans, nor are we sent to prove ourselves. The blessing, the benediction speaks of affirmation and conferral. That we go empowered for this mission, 
Grace recipients of the good gifts of God, filled with the Spirit, are imaginations fueled by the Word to imagine the world otherwise. To imagine the world otherwise. The benediction blesses us as we're sent to imagine the world otherwise. What was the world like in Belfast last night? The night before. The helicopter in the sky that we had to explain to the girls because they'd forgotten about helicopters in the skies. The news reports across the world yesterday and this morning. And we will be sent at the end of this service having been blessed by the benediction to what? To imagine the world Otherwise, what does that look like? Last week, as we thought of the sermon, we used John Stott. How can we develop a Christian mind which is both shaped by the truths of the historical biblical Christianity and acquainted with the realities of the contemporary world? How can we bring the scriptures to bear on what's going on in our world? So for us this weekend, how can we bring the scriptures to bear on what's going on in the Ardoine? How does the world of this year's 12th And the word of God caress and collide. Yesterday I blogged a challenge. How do we respond to the loyalist community that are enraged and rioting? Even there, as I said the sentence, what came into our minds when I said the loyalist community enraged and rioting may in my mind be the sectarianism that God needs to rip from me. What's our initial response? What do we want to call them? What have we called them? Clonard Fitzroy had the PUP's John Kyle to a meeting just a couple of weeks ago. And John gave us 12 reasons why this community is enraged. The first was, that flute bands have been demonized. The second was that they believe the Parades Commission is one-sided. There were ten others, but we don't need to get to the ten others. Two things John Kyle told us two weeks ago as part of Clonard Fitzroy that have caused this enrage. Now, I'm not talking about who's right and wrong about it. I'm just saying that there's a community in our city who feel isolated. A community that feel cut off and adrift. A community that feel that maybe the only way to get heard is by being violent. So my challenge yesterday was to the political and community leaders. How do the political and community leaders of that community caught adrift? How do they sensitively, discerningly, And with vision reimagined, connect with that community. Restore that community to some sense of feeling worthy again. Because they've been demonized. We've called them all kinds of names. In fact, one of the other ten things that John Kyle said was this. They are offended utterly by flags. How many times have I used flags? 
My middle class, South Belfast, university, I am so much better than them. And they call them flags. So I'll call them flags and I will oppress a community of my city by the way in my own sectarian heart I treat them. We need political and community leaders who are going to have to connect with a community that actually feels worthless and useless and left out. That's how they feel. Now, I might say it was an appalling demonstration of Northern Ireland in the news from my South Belfast months. But what, as somebody who follows Jesus, should I be doing to show love and preciousness and worth to a community that feels under the cosh? Political leaders, community leaders, middle-class people like myself need challenged. A few weeks before we had John Kyle, we had Declan Kearney, the chairman of Sinn Féin in the Alexander Hall, Clonard Fitzroy, listening and asking him some serious questions. Declan says that Sinn Féin are all about reconciliation. They're all about reaching out. I was in the Europa Hotel where they invited us into the Europa Hotel, telling us very pointedly that they used to ask us to leave the Europa Hotel at various intervals while they blew it up. Sinn Féin invited us into the Europa Hotel to tell us that they wanted an equal city and an equal island. I believe that Declan Kearney, upstairs in the Alexander Hall, was incredibly sincere when he said that he wanted to bring equality to the country. But how does that look? What does that mean when we take the flag down at the city hall? What does equality mean? How do we share that sense of equality or reconciliation with a community that sees one more part of their particular culture? And whether we care about flags or not, we've got to care about the people who care about flags. The challenge goes out to the Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist, political leaders. It goes out to me and the middle classes of the church who maybe this morning might not even expect to hear a sermon about the 12th. It goes out to the leadership of the nationalist and republican communities. How are they going to build an equal Ireland and include everybody in that shared future? What does it look like for a loyalist flute band to be included in our shared future? John Brewer at Faith and Trial upstairs. The church was there prophetically through the Reynolds and the Newells and the Goods and the Reeds. But where was the church leadership? Yesterday morning, Father Martin scanned all the web pages of the four main denominations and nobody at that point had made a statement. Thankfully, thankfully, the president of the Methodist church eventually on Facebook made her statement. But where's the church leadership in this? Where are we going to deal with the challenges? So what does the Bible say about it? This week I've been trying to read around John's gospel because that's what we finally decided we would preach about through autumn and winter. And I've been reading Tom Wright's book, How God Became King. I thought it was for the winter and then when the 12th erupted I realized it was for Sunday. 
Basically what's happening in God became king, and this is, I think, crucial, not only to ourselves as Christians and churches in Northern Ireland, but also what might be the reason why I cannot work out how the orange order with all its bases in the Bible can be saying some of the things that were said at the 12th. Maybe it's us that got it wrong. Maybe we're part of the blame. What Wright does amazingly well is he shows that the creeds of the church skip out from the incarnation to the atonement. Just skip it out. Jesus is born, Jesus dies. What he does in the middle, nobody's been interested in for hundreds of years. It's bizarre, isn't it? Janice's aunt, Beatty, who was a missionary in India, used to say to me, Steve, why do ministers always preach about Paul and they don't spend much time in Jesus? Well, the creeds told them that what Jesus did has actually, oh, it's lovely wee stories and it's nice to know those wee parables and it's lovely to think you should be blessed if you're poor and meek, but really, the creeds, we leave it out. Tom Wright would say we've left out the central basis of Jesus' ministry. Why he was born, why he died, why he was raised to, to life again is forgotten because we have cut out the kingdom. When I was studying my master's at Queen's, Stephen Williams told me that the kingdom of God as a systematic theology didn't happen until the 20th century. For centuries, we missed the kingdom of God. Now, I ask you, read the scriptures, read the gospels. How can we miss the kingdom of God? We prayed every morning in Balamina Academy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Left out. Of course it's left out because it wasn't the birth or the death or the resurrection. The birth and the death and resurrection are meaningless, or at least they just feed into our arrogant, self-serving, pietistical, personal salvation and get away from the fact that Jesus came to be king of the world. And so Wright goes into that in great detail. One of the things that he uses, which struck me with great impact this week as I'm sort of watching on the internet all this stuff. There's a photograph, by the way, on the internet. It's just fascinating. Just take a wee, because that was a lot there. Take a wee break and have a wee light moment. There's a, I think it was the front of the Telegraph, was it, yesterday, where this guy is being um, cannon, water cannoned off uh, a jeep. I don't know why you saw it, but he's in midair. He's been hit with the water of a water cannon, and he's midair, flying into the midst of this crowd. Take a look at that photo. It's a brilliant photo, but take a look at it again. need to ask Paul about it because the amazing thing about it is he's heading towards a crowd of people. And he's in the air, just about this above them. No one person's looking up. Nobody's going to catch him. Nobody's getting out of his way. Now, if there was a six-foot guy coming at me at the speed of 10 off a jeep, I think I would at least look up. There's one guy who seems to be playing on his phone as this guy's about to land on his head. Photoshopped? Maybe Photoshop, but it's an interesting image. It's an interesting image. The violence that we were seeing in these photographs. Caress and collide it with this verse. Jesus is in front of Pilate. Tom Wright would be saying, as bizarrely, I've been saying quite a bit in the last six months, that the whole of the Bible is Caesar versus God. Who is king? Is it Caesar is Lord? Is it Jesus is Lord? Is it Herod that's Lord? Is it Jesus is Lord? Is it Pharaoh that's Lord? Is it Jesus that's Lord? This is what the whole thing's about. 
And now we have the moment where actually the two clash. The kingdoms of the world are clashing. That's what Tom Wright says. Jesus is in front of Pilate. And Pilate's trying his best to get out of this and wash his hands and set this guy free because he doesn't see any reason whatever that he should be putting him on a cross. And Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, of course, if you have only the birth and the death and resurrection, and you read that, you say, oh, the kingdom is not of this world. It's some ethereal, eternal place Jesus is talking about. Tom Wright would say that the first century readers of the Gospels had no concept of some ethereal place. This was about here. What Jesus was saying is that the kingdom I bring is so bizarre that it's just from another planet. And you know what that other planet says? If I was from this planet, I would fight to sort this out. But in the planet, in the mindset, in the kingdom, in the reimagining of how the world is otherwise, no, we're not going to fight for this. We're going to die for this. We're not going to have victory for this. We're going to die for victory. We're going to suffer. We're not going to be crowned with anything other than a crown of thorns. This is a bizarre, bizarre kingdom. You know what? If I was thinking up a creed, I would leave this stuff out. This is messy. But do you get the kind of caress and collide? If it was of this world, I would fight. If it was of this world, I would throw stones. I would throw bricks. I would riot for my rights. But this kingdom, the Lord washes the servant's feet. The Lord is a servant. In this kingdom, you love your enemy. In this kingdom, you turn the other cheek. In this kingdom, the meek are blessed. This is another world. This is another imagining. This is the kingdom of God. And when I die, and when I'm raised to life, it's in. And my people are going to live this way. Now, if we were reading the gospel the way the gospel's written, how would we be rightly? How would we be able to bring the scriptures that's on the side of the sash together with some of the inflamed sermons that were preached at the field? How would Protestants who hold firmly to this book be in any way culturally even thinking about fighting to prevent the things that are happening? That's the challenge. And you know what? It's our vocation to go and live it. And you know what? It's going to take a lot of benedictions to be able to even try and live this stuff in the city that we live in. We're going to need some serious blessing. Let me end with one paragraph from Harriet Long. She's part of East Belfast Mission. She blogged wonderfully yesterday as she does so often. It's time to dream of a new and profound justice and use our influence 
Listen to this. Listen to this good. Use our influence in how we make friends. We're going to get rid of sectarianism. We've got to think differently in how we make friends. Where we socialize. Where we buy our houses. What we laugh at. Flags. What we teach our children. Where we go to school. How to take responsibility for our words and our actions. We've got to learn how to compromise. And we've got to do it now. This morning, Norman Hamilton invited ministers to come and meet with him about sectarianism. To think about the answer to sectarianism and hatred in our streets. As we will sing in a moment and then a benediction will take us out onto those streets. There's nothing else that we go to do, guys, this week. Than live lives that imagine otherwise. We live in Belfast. We live in Northern Ireland. We are called to bring God's will here as in this other crazy, mad, insane kingdom that Jesus ushers in through me and you. What's the first thing that I need to do or that we need to do? going to pray and then we're going to sing as I pray I'm going to use a poem I wrote when F.W. de Klerk met with my students in South Africa a number of years ago he gave us some of the wisdom that's needed to bring peace and then I used Psalm 139 to make that into a prayer let's pray Search me, O God, down to the very marrow of my soul. Take every selfish part of me away that would stop me from being whole. Help me peer inside my prejudice to see the insensitivities of all my actions. Make kind the the reflexes of my heart. Make gentle the strength of my reactions. Help me squint at every weakness that comes from family and neighborhood to smash all idols of destruction and create the art of all that is good. Search me, O God, down to the very marrow of my soul. Take every selfish part of me away that would stop me being whole. And when I've let you search, O God, believing to be in your spirit's collusion, let me look just one more time for any remnants of my own delusion.
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.